chapter 17. Now, despite you think, oh, okay, God's done with Abram, right? He's going to be in timeout or whatever. Well, chapter 17, God comes in and starts revealing more of the covenant. This is what's amazing. God doesn't like kick you out and walk away from you. He actually comes in and he just reinforces the covenant promises, right? Reminds you. Remember, the key to really getting people to respond in obedience is to remind them of the character of God, remind them of the incredible things that God has for them, not to constantly beat them down and punish them for that. No, I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences, but in those consequences, there should always be a reminder of the blessings and the promises and the character of God. That's what motivates people. That's what motivates people. We're not motivated by judgment. If that's true, we would all be perfect now after the law. We're motivated by the fact that he first loved us and the character of God. And so God doesn't respond with this. With he- there will be consequences. Don't worry. But God, they don't need God for the consequences. Life will give them the consequences with this polygamy and Isaac and Ishmael now. But God comes in to remind him of who he is. So when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to him and said, I am the sovereign God. Walk before me and be blameless. Then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and I will give you a multitude of descendants. Now, your translations probably say sovereign God or maybe almighty God. This Hebrew word is the word El Shaddai. And you're probably familiar with that with Amy Grant. Um, but El Shaddai, this is the first time that this word is introduced in the story, but not the only time it's been used. Other gods, other pagan gods were called El Shaddai. This is not unique to Yahweh. Remember, the only name that's unique to Yahweh is Yahweh. All other names of God have been used of other gods and other people. And so God uses this word, and, and some people are like, oh, there you go, that's the same God. No, 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 no. If I call you compassionate and I call somebody else compassionate, I'm not saying you're one the same person. Remember, these are descriptions of character. And so he calls himself El Shaddai. Now, the first thing I need to tell you is we have no idea what this name really means. But the other thing is we kind of get an idea of what the day name means because I think what you're getting used to, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but you will as I keep saying it over and over again. Oftentimes in the Bible, names have two meanings. They're technical etymological meaning, as in like break it down, look it up in the dictionary. But sometimes it has its contextual, maybe phonetic meaning of the name. But it sounds like or rhymes like this word over here, but I don't really like that word for a name. So I'm going to use this word, and therefore I'm going to say that this word now means that over there because they sound the same. The Bible does that a lot, and people do that a lot. And so we don't know where this word comes from. But knowing that the Bible often uses context to define the meaning of a name, we could probably take some pretty good guesses. Now, the, close under, the closest understanding of what we may have of this is this might come from the Akkadian word shadu. And I know you're going to remember all these words. Um, but shadu, we really don't know. But shadu has the idea of the mountain. It means the mountain. And so the context seems to be less of almighty and powerful. God is not flexing his muscles here. The idea seems to be more of his sovereignty, his sovereignty, his kingship. Because remember, Abram hasn't been acknowledging God as king in the last chapter. He's been acknowledging himself as king by making, taking matters in his own hands. And then God comes in and says, I am El Shaddai, sovereign, 
keep my commands, and then I will continue the covenant. That sounds like I'm your parent, you just messed up, get on track and obey me. So that communicates the idea of sovereign authority more than the idea of powerful. You don't need the power of God right now. You need the, I'm your boss, I'm your authority right now. But the other thing that's interesting is this whole chapter is going to be about fertility. He's going to come in and he's going to say, I'm going to make you multiple descendants. I'm going to give you a blessing. He's going to give him circumcision, which is all about fertility. And every single time, this word appears about 48 times in the, the Bible, and by far the majority of them are in Genesis and the book of Job. And Genesis is all about fertility. In fact, the next time that we see it over and over and again is fertility, fertility. It's always connected to children, 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 multiple descendants. And the time that you really see it is when a Jacob in chapter 49 is blessing all of his children and continuing on their lines. And then he says, and may El Shaddai give you blessings from the breast and the womb. That, you don't get any more fertility than that. Okay, so the idea is that this might actually communicate the idea of fertility and that God is saying, don't look to your pagan gods for fertility, which remember the predominant gods in the ancient world right now are fertility gods because the two things that you want more than anything in your life are children and crops. Those are the two most important things, which is fertility, the seed of the land and the seed of the human. Now, that's interesting too because then that takes you right back to the garden which are the two most important seeds, the seed of the land and the seed of the human that come together to then link heaven and earth together, which God is going to constantly describe Israel as a child or some kind of a tree, like fig tree, olive, or grapes, which is technically not a tree, but it's a plant with a seed. And so this fits into that bigger context of seed. But the other thing is it might actually be play on words because not only could this come from the word shadu, which means mountain, but it also could come from the word, a play on words of shada, which means breast. And so now I know you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute. That's not right. You can't talk that way about God. Yeah, I can. Because here's the reality. Yes, breasts have a sexual purpose, and that is a part of God's design. But first and foremost, breasts are nurturing, life, fertility. And you have to realize that there's a lot of things that God's going to say, and he's not going to blush. And because he designed our bodies. And just like he's going to use everything in creation to make a point about himself, he's even going to use your body to make points about himself because he is your author and every detail of your body. And so for him, this isn't some, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that, or oh, that's inappropriate. You don't talk like that in church. For him, this is his body, your body. He designed it. He created it. And he created it to produce children and life, which are a symbol of blessing. So it would make sense for him to turn around and say, I am El Shaddai, the God of the mountain authority to have the authority to give you blessings of the breast and the womb. And if you think that's weird, then you, then you, can't, do, you can't argue Jacob away. Jacob literally says breast and womb, period, right there. And God doesn't blush. He connects it to his blessings and says, this is the God that I am. I'm a motherly, like, nurturing God who will not only am I sovereign authority male, but I am also a feminine God of nurturing fertility and blessings and provision and care. Now, God's not saying that he's androgynous, a man and female, because God is not male or female. He's 
God. But he carries femininity and masculinity in himself because we are both in the image of God, masculine and feminine. And we both represent God equally as the sexes. So don't read too much into this and go into some kind of transgender thing, which I know this group won't, but some people do. But there's plenty of places in the Bible where God makes clear that he's not anywhere connected to that. It's a metaphor, not a biological statement. And this might actually be a play on words because not only do this word mountain, sovereign, and shadu, breast, fertility, sound like each other, but there's a lot of mountains in the world that are called breasts because they look like breasts. And that's a little perverted, but that's the idea. And so he's bringing these two opposite images together and saying, I am this God who has the power and the authority, like the mountains, majestic, to give you promises of fertility and blessing and children like a mother who breastfeeds people. I am your God. And he doesn't blush. He doesn't blush. Now, when I'm teaching my freshmen this, I call this uncomfortable day number four <laughs> because we're not done yet, okay? He gives them a new name. And then remind, remember, he reminds them that the covenant is not unconditional. Now, he doesn't have to remind them that the covenant is unconditional. We need to be reminded of that because we've been taught that it is. He reminds them that the covenant is conditional. You still have to obey me. And if you don't obey me, Abraham, I'm not going to give these blessings to you. Now, there's a part of you that needs to realize that God has every right not to bless Abram if he does not obey, because that's, we know that. If you don't obey God, there are no blessings. Christ makes that clear. But at the same time, you also know, yeah, but I bet you he will keep blessing Abram, even though Abram doesn't keep the covenant promises, because I think I've figured out by now that that's the character of God. And so God has every right but you kind of expect that to be kind of like, I don't know. But what you need to understand is that, yes, God probably will not take the covenant from Abram if he doesn't obey, but he doesn't mean that he'll be blessed if he doesn't obey. And that's very clear throughout the Bible. God doesn't take the covenant from David when he sins big time. But David doesn't get a lot of blessings for the rest of 2 Samuel either because of his sin. Remember, consequences and rejection are two different things. God won't reject Abram, but he also won't protect him from consequences. And so this is the idea. Then God comes to him and says, not only am I giving you a, myself a new name that connects me to the covenant blessings, but I'm going to give you a new name, Abram. You're no longer be my father is exalted, as in Terah. You're going to be Abraham, which means a father of multitude. Because your identity is everything. If you call a child stupid his entire life, he'll think that. If you call a child loved his entire life, he'll think that about himself. And so God changes him from it's all about your dad to now it's all about the promises that I'm going to give you. And now Abram, every time he hears his name and says his name, he's not going to remember his past of his father as the patriarch He's going to remember God is going to bless me because he's the true patriarch. He's shifting his identity. And then he goes on and says, once again, I'm going to give you multiple promises. I will make you extremely fruitful, fruitful, fertility. I will make nations out of you. Kings will descend from you. Now he's adding more to this, not just multiple descendants, not just a great nation, but kings, power, authority. My covenant will be a perpetual 
a never-ending covenant. And it will go on for generations and generations, and I'll be your God and the God of your descendants. Now we get the idea that God is he's reminding them that this, this is the new thing that God is adding here. This is going to go on. This isn't just about you anymore, Abram. I'm not just promising you multiple descendants. I'm now adding to this promise to say that this covenant is going to go beyond you to all your descendants. It's not just I'm going to give you multiple descendants. It's that I'm going to give you multiple descendants, and I'm going to be their God and stay with them through all of those multiple generations. And so God is adding that to these covenant promises. And the land will be yours, and you'll reside in it. Then once again, verse 9, he reminds them, but as for you, you must keep my requirements. He's making it clear, you have to obey me, that I am imposing on you. That's strong language. Throughout the generations, this is my requirement, that you and your descendants after you must keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. God comes along, and he now attaches a sign to the covenant. Remember, every covenant has a sign. So we got the promises in chapter 12. The covenant became an actual covenant in chapter 15. And now we're getting the sign of the covenant in chapter 17, and it's circumcision. I'm like, wow, that's a great proof that I belong to God. <laughs> a little awkward. Well, remember, this is not awkward for them like it is in our culture. It's interesting that when we pervert it in a movie, we'll laugh. And I don't mean like we, but I mean a lot of Christians and a lot of Americans. But then when we talk about like this, all of a sudden it becomes weird or uncomfortable. And I've even noticed that in my own students, they'll like get real uncomfortable when we talk about it in a godly way. But then I've seen them in the, joking about it in an appropriate way of some movie that they saw. And when it's inappropriate, somehow we're not uncomfortable. But when it's appropriate, all of a sudden we get awkward and we become uncomfortable. Wow, sin is so powerful. And so God gives them the sign of circumcision. And he says that every male. Now notice what he's saying here. He doesn't say just every male. He says every male, whether free, coming freely into your house, or a slave. And God's making the point that here, I don't care who they are, what their status is. They're all to be circumcised. Why circumcision? couple reasons. Now, there's probably lots of reasons, but here's some big ones that we've been able to figure out. One, now, first of all, circumcision is not uncommon in other cultures. We know the Egyptians did circumcision. We know that certain Cadians did circumcision, but not the Canaanites never really did circumcision. The Philistines didn't. Um, so it seems to not be every culture, but this is what we do know. Circumcision was never done at birth, and every time it shows up in other cultures, it always shows up in grown males, they're already adults, and it's seen as a rite of passage. It's a, you've done something to prove yourself worthy, and now that you've proved yourself worthy, you're going to take this mark that brings pain, and you're going to take it like a man. But it also is marking your malehood because only men prove themselves worthy of this. And it shows that you are now one of the men because of your macho accomplishment and that no women can be a part of this. So it's a who all I'm proving myself macho a part of the culture kind of a thing. Or that I am now part of the religiously elite because I've proven myself intellectual capable of demonstrating knowledge to be a part of things. So it seems to be a rite of passage. 
So one of the reasons that God is using this sign is that he wants to use the sign to make that point. But just like God, he takes something, but he redeems it. And so he's saying this is a mark of a rite of passage, except it's placed on you at birth, which means you've done nothing to deserve this marking. I give this mark because I choose you. So he's using a symbol that all, it's like giving out gold medals to only people who win the Olympics. And we say, you proved yourself worthy. And only if you prove yourself worthy, do you get a Super Bowl ring or a gold medal. And this is like God coming in and giving everybody Super Bowl rings and everybody gold medals the minute they're born in the hospital. Taking a very powerful cultural symbol of your own skill and worthiness and then saying, no, this is about me, and I choose you, period. And so that's one reason he's using circumcision. The second reason he's using circumcision is this. Because you don't get any closer to the image of fertility than the reproductive organs. Remember, this is why I don't have a com- I'm not uncomfortable with the idea of breast, which El Shaddai, because he goes right here with circumcision. And so he's saying this, this is where all the seeds are going to come from. And every single time that you lie with your wife, you will be reminded that this is marked by God. You have tried to produce a seed through your own effort for a hundred years and nothing has happened. But the minute you're marked by God, oh my goodness, next year you're going to have a child. And there will be a constant reminder to Abram or Abraham that the thing that produces children is marked by God and is now going to produce a miraculous child past menopause and produce the nation of God. It becomes a symbol of the covenant. Now, what's really important here is God says, if you don't cut off that skin, then I will cut you off from the covenant. Now, that's huge. That's huge. God directly says, this skin is of the flesh. And if you don't cut this off, you're cut off from me. Meaning that if you don't mark yourself with my sign, then you cannot be a part of me. Why didn't God include this when they were walking between the animals? Part of it might be that I think it has to come so closely to the birth of Isaac. When they're walking between the animals, it's only been 10 years. We're now 24 years in, and God's about ready to say in chapter 18, this time next year you're going to have a child. Which means that now that child is not going to come because now you're truly marked by God. And so, but other than that, I don't know. I don't know. But the best answer I've got is because now God is literally going to say, we're, I mean, specifically, we're told Abram's 99 years old. We're going to be told Isaac is going to be born when Abram's 100 years old. So that means we're like, literally, Sarah's going to be pregnant in about three or four months at the most. So I think that's probably why that marking is coming so close. Where Abram, 15 years ago, is initiating the covenant. And God responds to Abram and says, I'll give you a covenant. But God is not ready to give him a child yet. So now that he's given ready a child, now he's ready to mark him. So that's my best answer. He marks in this way. But here's the next reason why circumcision. 
Because this is the, the only physical organ of the body that you can truly like see. I mean, there's a lot of organs that might do this on some biology level that I'm not completely aware of because I'm not like an expert and a doctor in all these areas. But in a, a culture like this, and still even our culture today, this is one of the only organs, it's the only organ that you can see without any kind of exploratory surgery that produces both toxic waste and life is from the genitalia that both the seed or the egg of life is produced, but also toxic urine. And the idea is, is if you're not marked by God, you produce death and waste. But the minute you're marked by God, you produce life. Now, I think this is a very important thing to understand because this is the main theological point of circumcision that the rest of the Bible is going to jump on. And the idea is this, the flesh. So this flesh that they need to cut off represents the flesh of humanity, the sin nature. And if you don't cut off the sinful flesh and become marked by God, you will just keep producing toxic waste. But if you cut off the flesh and remove the flesh and put off the old man and put on the new man and become marked by God, then you'll produce life. And that's the image that God is going to fully develop in the New Testament, but begins to lay the foundation or the seed for that imagery as we go on. And so the idea is if you've got to be marked by God if you're going to produce life. Faith produces life, not works, not the flesh. But even more powerful than that is Isaiah 64, verse 6. Now, we're used to hearing all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. Oh, it would be so much more uncomfortable if that's what it really meant. What that Hebrew literally says is all of your righteous acts are like the dead, lifeless blood on a woman's menstrual cloth. You're like, wow, God, you kind of made your point there. (laughs) Well, what's the point? Why does a woman have a period? Because there's no life in her. And so the blood becomes dead waste that the body flushes out rather than life. But when that woman becomes impregnated, she then doesn't flush out dead blood. She flushes out, well, I don't want to use the word flush, but to keep with the analogy, she gives birth to a baby. And if anything that I've learned after taking like birthing classes and all that kind of stuff and having three kids, it's a miracle that any kid is born alive and healthy. And it truly is a miracle. And so what God is saying is that all your righteous acts, the most righteous thing that you can do, is still just lifeless dead blood. Because you're not impregnated with the mark of God, the seed of God. So God takes your redemption and ties it to the male sexuality and the female sexuality, and he doesn't blush. You're going to produce waste, waste, or you're marked by God, and you produce life and life. And then, here's what's interesting. As Paul jumps on this, and he begins to jump all over this imagery of cutting off the flesh. But where is he getting this? He's getting this from circumcision. He's getting it from Isaiah 64. And how do you know that? Because when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and Psalm 51, and Psalm 9, and Psalm 31, and Ezekiel 11, we're told that our heart is corrupted. And we're told 
by Moses when he says, look, you've never obeyed. I mean, the minute God saved you and did all these miracles and these plagues and he brought you out of Egypt and you saw the, the glory of God and he came on the mountain and he appeared to you, like 20 days later, you're worshiping a golden calf. There's something seriously wrong with your heart. And the Bible makes the point your heart is dead, it is cold, it is evil, it is lifeless, it is worldly. It produces nothing but dead, lifeless blood. And then Moses says, you, it's not enough that you are circumcised. You have to be circumcised by the heart. Because the heart is the only other organ, metaphorically, that produces both death and life. Because whatever goes into the heart of a man will come out of a man. And the heart reveals who you truly are. And that is important because all throughout the Bible, God makes the point your heart is dead, it is cold, there's a way that seems right to a man but leads to evil and destruction and death. And then he comes in Ezekiel 11 and he comes in and says, and on that day I will make a new covenant with you and I will give you a new heart. No longer will you have a heart of stone, but you will have a heart that is new. And you'll have the same heart. And then Paul comes along and says, you have to be circumcised by the heart. Um, heart. Well, what does that mean? You had to cut off that evil, sinful flesh and put off the old man and put on the new man. And what does that mean? Well, the only way you can do that is if you have been impregnated with the seed of the Holy Spirit. And he takes the imagery of seed. He takes the imagery of circumcision. And he ties it into your redemption. And what he's saying is, he starts with Abram and gives him a physical sign. Something that is obvious. Urine, seed, and egg. We get that. That makes sense, biologically. And once he's developed that so fully, then he can move into that more complicated thing, your heart. That's not so easy. We can convince ourselves that we're good people a lot. We can convince ourselves that we're not really as bad as that person over there. Yeah, I need to be saved, but it's not like I need to be saved as much as that. But he has to establish the thing that is obvious and biological first before he can move into the abstract and the theological and the metaphysical. And this is the point that God is making. You either have the seed of God and you're part of the covenant promises because you produce life, or you don't have the seed of God, and you produce nothing but death. And that's the point of circumcision. That's the point of circumcision. Does that make point sense? Be marked by God if you want to produce life. Now, God comes in and gives them one more requirement. You have to do this when you're eight years old. Now, they would have no idea why. This is based on me reading a scientific journal. So if I mess something up, please forgive me, but I think I have it pretty accurate. The ability to clot is largely based on a protein called prothrombin, and that is largely based on vitamin K production. And so a child in the womb of the woman cannot produce this very well. She's completely, the child is completely dependent upon the mother for the production of this protein, which um, is largely dependent upon vitamin K. And the child doesn't produce any real, a whole lot of vitamin K in the womb because the mother is providing all that and doesn't need that. And that's true of a lot of things in the womb. So when the child is given birth, the child comes out, and about day three, it's producing somewhere between 20 and 30% of vitamin K, which leads to this protein for clotting of blood. So if you cut a child before day eight, 
it will basically bleed. It cannot clot its own blood. Now, today, that's not huge scary because we have so many, we can induce vitamin K. And yeah, every baby gets vitamin K shot within their first week. Yeah. So when our, all three of our kids are born, they inject them with vitamin K and that kind of stuff. So as a parent today, that's not scary. They get injected with vitamin K, and even if you didn't because you were birthed in a car somewhere on the highway, it's not that far away from somewhere to get that. But in the ancient world, in the desert, that's scary because it's, you can't stop it. So what's interesting, though, is on the eighth day, the human body goes, up to a, goes from 30 to 110% production of vitamin K, which means you are way beyond clotting. Now, on day nine, it then levels back out to 100% in a healthy, normal child. Obviously, we know that there's defects out there. So that means any time before day eight, that child's going to bleed out to death in this kind of a culture. On day eight, they are beyond 100% the ability to clot, which means that kid's going to clot super fast. Circumcision. Well, then why not just circumcise them after day eight or something like that? Well, this is cool, too, because before that day, there's no nerve endings there. They're kind of there, but they haven't fully developed and bundled together into the true ability to feel pleasure or pain. It is not until day nine that the nerve endings in that male organ actually bundle together and actually can start feeling pain, which means day eight is the only day for prime clotting and not feeling pain on that kind of a level. And God says, circumcise them. We did not discover this until like the 1900s. And the Jews just did it because God said it. And then later science, we realized, oh, that's why day eight. The reality is, this is the beauty of God, as not only has he designed our body to make a theological point about our redemption, but he also knows your body so well that he knows exactly the best day to have this done without dying or feeling the pain. Day eight. But here's the other cool thing. The number eight also represents new beginnings theologically. And so this is the new beginning of the child because this child belongs to God, which is why Christ was raised from the dead on the eighth day of the week. You're like, wait a minute, that doesn't exist. Yeah, it does. Theologically speaking, Sunday was considered the eighth day of the week or the first day of the week. It could do double duty in a theological sense. Just like the ace can be one or the, on either end of the deck of the cards in certain games. And that's how Sunday function. And so not only is Sunday the first day of the week, but it's also the eighth day of the week, which is double new beginnings. And so this is what God is saying. He's marking you. Everything has all these multiple meanings. And God is tying the redemption and the covenant and the life and the health of the child all into this one analogy because he is the designer of the universe. He's the designer of the universe. So yeah, today now we get vitamin K injections. So you can debate whether that's theologically correct or not. So I don't think it's a big deal. So then he goes on and says, oh, by the way, now you're also to give Sarai a new name. And Sarai is now to become Sarah, not just meaning princess, but that she will be a mother of Princes and princesses. And so he's now tying her identity into the covenant promises. And Abram bowed down and he laughed. Now, he's not laughing like, oh my gosh, this is stupid. Seriously, God, whatever, you're a moron. He's laughing like, holy cow, this is brain overloading. 
Is this really, truly possible disbelief? So Abram bowed down with his face to the ground and laughed. And as he said himself, can a son be born to a man who's 100 years old? Can Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now there's a little bit of like, I don't believe this. I already have a child. Like this is not possible, right? Because Abram doesn't realize that God is the God of resurrection yet. Because he has, he's going to resurrect Sarai's dead womb. And God said, No, Sarah, your wife is going to bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac, which means he laughs. Now, what's interesting is the antecedent changes. When it says that Abraham Isaac, it means that Abram's the one laughing. But then God turns around and says, You are to name him Isaac, as in he laughs, but now the antecedent is God, meaning that God is now laughing. Now, don't take that as like God is making fun of him now. Obviously, we don't see it that way, but some, somebody out there would. Um, the idea is this. Probably the, I, I wish I could have gotten the clip. I mean, I could have gotten the clip, but I just forgot. I think this is the best imagery that I can come up with um, that we probably have all seen. We've all seen a Christmas story, I think, right? Most of us have. If you haven't, go watch the end of the movie and you'll see it. All throughout the Christmas story, it's about a kid who wants a Red Ryder BB gun, and he, nobody will want to give it to him because you'll shoot your eye out, kid, and they're not safe. And so all throughout the movie, the, the movie focuses on the kid the entire time. He's the focus of the story. The only thing that you ever see about the father is the father is an emotionally disconnected man the entire story. You don't ever see him really emotionally connected to the child. He's not a bad father. He's not a mean father. He's just an emotionally disconnected father. And that's what you see throughout this story. So Christmas Day comes, and he doesn't get what he wants. And they're like, hey, how's Christmas? And the boy was like, eh, I guess it was okay. He's like, well, did you get everything you wanted? He's like, yeah, I guess I did. And all of a sudden, the father's sitting on the couch. And he says, what's that over there behind the desk? And the kid's like, oh. And he goes to the behind the desk. He's like, what is that? Go get it. And it's wrapped up. And the kid's excited because it's another gift. And he pulls it out and just happens to be the exact size of a Red Ryder baby gun box. And the kid gets a little excited. He's shaking and he's holding it. And the father says, open it. And the, he begins to open the present. And lo and behold, it's red, red, red gun. The kid's excited and the joy on his face and everything. And then he pulls the BBs out and he's filling up the gun and that kind of stuff. But what is interesting about that movie is for the first time ever in the entire movie, the director switches the camera from the boy and puts it on the father. Most of the scene, the camera is actually on the father, not the boy. And it goes back and forth. And for the first time ever, you see the father emotionally coming alive. He begins to smile, and he gets excited, and he's acting. He's like, yeah, do you know how to do it? Open up like this. It's really cool. And put the BB. Oh, yeah, don't do not too much. Put it in there. And you see the father interacting with the boy, and there's this incredible laugh. And then he begins to laugh. And the laughter is this father who has just given his kid this incredible gift that's bringing this kid with great joy, and is therefore filling the father with great joy. And it's the only time that you see the father like that, and the only time the camera spends as much time on the father as that moment. And that's what Isaac means. God laughs. He is giving Abram the thing that he has wanted his entire life, that he's been begging for, but nobody will give him his Red Ryder BB gun. And now God is going to come in and say, this time next year, you're going to open, so to speak, the thing that you wanted more than anything, Isaac. And I am going to laugh with the joy of a father who's given his son 
the thing that he's wanted his entire life. And that's what Isaac means. And every time that Abram, Abraham hears that name and Isaac hears that name, they're going to be reminded of the character of a God that might sometimes seem distant, but is truly emotionally involved in their lives and laughing with joy at giving their people good gifts, even though Abram doesn't deserve it because he just screwed up big time in the last chapter. Because that's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of God that he is. And so God says, name him that. But then he also reminds them that I'm also going to bless Ishmael too. And just like Isaac is going to have 12 sons eventually through Jacob, Ishmael is going to have 12 princes coming out of him, which is the number of God. So Abram took his son, Ishmael, and every male in his household, whether born in his house, and every same, in that same day, and he circumcised them all. Now that first circumcision is going to be a lot of pain, because most of them are not 80 years old. But this is incredible. Notice it says on that exact day, Abraham took every single person in his tribe, his patriarchal command, and he circumcised them all, and he became circumcised. That shows you the incredible, without hesitation, obedience of God. A very painful obedience. And it also shows you either the incredible trust and respect that they have for Abraham or the faith in God that everybody else has as well with Abraham. Because without hesitation, everyone got circumcised that day. Instant obedience. And this is why Abraham is righteous. Because no, he's not always perfect, but in the long run, in the bigger picture, he does trust and obey. Does that make sense? And so this is Abraham's new identity and name, sign, and relationship with God. 